You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO Magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Welcome, everyone. Um, you are listening to 2 for Tea, and I'm your host, Iona Italia, coming to you from London as usual. And my guest today is Dr. Azra Raza. Um, Azra is the Chan Sung Xiong, am I pronouncing that correctly? I'm sorry. The Chan Sung Xiong Professor of Medicine at Columbia and Director of the MDS Center. Um, she is an expert in um, MDS, which is myelodystatic uh, syndrome. Um, it is a pre-leukemia syndrome. Um, and also in acute myeloid leukemia. She's a practicing physician and a medical researcher. She is also the author of the book, The First Cell and Human and the Human Costs of Pursuing Cancer's Last, which was published last year and has just been shortlisted for the Phi Beta Kappa Science Award. And as well as uh, being a medical expert um, Azra is a very keen student of literature, and together with Sarah Suleri, she is, has written a commentary um, on Galib called Galib Epistemologies of Excellence. Welcome, Azra. Thank you, Iona. Pleasure to be here. It's an it's an honor to have you. Um, I would you like to begin by by reading a little. Um, giving the reader a little taste, the listener, <laughs> the listener a little taste of your book. Thank you for that invitation. I think it's a great way of beginning. So I'm going to simply read uh, some of the opening, couple of opening passages from the book. You already introduced the audience to the fact that I treat uh, pre-leukemic condition, myelodysplastic syndromes, and a third of these patients develop acute myeloid leukemia, so I will begin from here. The treatment landscape for acute myeloid leukemia has not evolved much in 50 years, nor has it for most of the common types of cancers. With minor variations, a protocol of surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation the slash-poison-burn approach to treating cancer remains unchanged. It is an embarrassment. Equally embarrassing is the arrogant denial of that embarrassment. Technologic advances and cure of cancer in animal models are proudly proclaimed as if those successes had anything to do with treating the disease in humans. Improvement in survival of cancer patients measured in weeks is regularly referred to as game changer. To make rosy pronouncements is profoundly unfair to patients. No one is winning the war on cancer. It is mostly hype. 
the same rhetoric from the same self-important voices for the past half a century. Cancer treatment was primitive just a century ago, and historians will say the same about our practices 50 years from now. We boast of magnificent godlike technologic advances, editing the genome efficiently, turning genes off and on at will. Yet, cancer treatment, for the most part, remains paleolithic in comparison. The issue is not so much that there has been little progress in cancer research. The question is why there is so little improvement in treatment. Why can't we make use of the millions of research papers published in the past 50 years claiming huge successes in understanding the biology of cancer? For four decades, I have been hearing the same glowing predictions about the magic treatment just around the corner, resulting from a better understanding of oncogenes, tumor suppressor genes, the human genome, the transcriptome, the immune system, or choking off blood supply to tumors. Most have fallen flat when brought to the bedside. The gaping disconnect between knowledge about cancer biology and the capacity to use this knowledge to benefit patients is staggering. I will stop here. Thank you, Azra. Um, I, uh, we are going to return to that, to just how, how little progress has been made in treatment um, and um, why that is a little later in the podcast. But before we launch into that, I would like to just start with a, by asking you um, how you first became interested in medicine and why you became interested in oncology in particular. That's a good start, actually, uh, Iona. Um, it's very interesting that I grew up in Pakistan, a country where science education was not easily available at an advanced level. But for some inexplicable reason, since I was like four years old, I remember my early some of my earliest memories as being those of getting intensely curious about um, natural phenomena. For example, an animal especially, I would be uh, on my knees following ants around and imagining all kinds of things as they dipped into their holes uh, and started reading about science uh, as a result of my curiosity uh, very early in life. And had I grown up in this country, I'm pretty convinced, Iona, that I would be a mermaid mermacologist because I've been a mermecophile, an ant lover uh, since as long as I can remember. They're the most fascinating creature in the world, making up 20% of the biomass on this planet right now. Um, but this curiosity, I'm afraid, was uh, not met with the kinds of education I needed in Pakistan. And the only way I could follow even a career in science was to uh, become a medical doctor. No PhDs were available. And that's what happened to me, that I thought I would become a doctor just as an entry into science and then proceed to an advanced uh, Western country where I could follow my initial love, which is a study of uh, biology. Now, what happened next is when I joined medical school, 
and I saw my first patient, Iona, it completely changed me because my curiosity now changed to wonder. You know, curiosity is something when you have a question, you do some research, you find an answer. But wonder, as opposed to curiosity, completely stands reality on its head because you suddenly see what you took for granted as being utterly um, opposed to the reality principle. And seeing patients did that to me. And it was love at first sight. And I decided that from that moment on, my future, no matter what I did, no matter how deeply I delved into science, would always be informed by trying to help patients. That's how I ended up in science to begin with, then medicine, and then oncology happened because the biggest challenge uh, in patients that I was seeing in Pakistan, both at the intellectual and emotional level, came from cancer patients. You know, Iona, they would travel hundreds of miles from villages and uh, remote areas to come to the city seeking treatment, nursing huge fungating tumor masses in their bodies, in their skeletal bodies. So we would see end-stage cancer patients that you really don't see in this country without having received any treatment. So we see end-stage patients in this country, but they've been so heavily treated that they die of treatments rather than of huge cancer masses. Whereas in Pakistan, at least in the 70s, we didn't, these patients didn't have treatments available. And when they arrived at the hospital um, with this kind of malicious, aggressive cancers that was were really bursting through their bodies in front of our eyes. It was the viciousness of the tumors combined with an intellectual challenge to understand what caused the cell to go rogue in the body to such an extent that gripped me both emotionally and intellectually. So that's why oncology. Sorry for such a long-winded answer. Thank you. You know, as I was reading, I was reading your account of this in the book and I kept thinking of... Um, the account in Middlemarch of Lydgate finding his medical vocation. And since I know that you are a great lover of literature, I'm going to read a couple of small snatches from, from that because I was, I was so struck by the parallel. Um, of course, uh, Lydgate ends up having a very different career from yours, but these are the beginnings of his passion for medicine. And... She says, um, one vacation, a wet day, sent him to the small home library to hunt once more for a book, which might have some freshness for him. In vain, alas. Unless, indeed, he took down a dusty row of volumes with grey paperbacks and dingy labels, the volumes of an old cyclopedia, which he had never disturbed. It would at least be a novelty to disturb them. They were on the highest shelf and he stood on a chair to get them down. But he opened the volume which he first took from the shelf, 
Somehow one is apt to read in a makeshift attitude just where it might seem inconvenient to do so. The page he opened on was under the head of anatomy, and the first passage that drew his eyes was on the vowels of the heart. He was not much acquainted with vowels of any sort, but he knew that valvae were folding doors. And through this crevice came a sudden light, startling him with his first vivid notion of finely adjusted mechanism in the human bra- in the human frame. And he's, he, he says this is slightly later in this, in the same chapter, um, he had a conviction that the medical profession, as it might be, was the finest in the world, presenting the most perfect interchange between science and art, offering the most direct alliance between intellectual conquest and the social good. Lydgate's nature demanded this combination. He was an emotional creature with a flesh and blood sense of fellowship which withstood all the abstractions of special study. He cared not only for cases, but for John and Elizabeth, especially Elizabeth. And there was another attraction in his profession too. It wanted reform. So that, that those two passages really reminded me of, I was really reminded of them as I was reading that, autobiographical section of your book, um, that wonderful combination of the intellectual challenge and the ability to, to do real social good to individuals. Um, so, <laughs> And no one could have expressed it better than Elliot. Yes. She is so marvelous. Yes. Oh, God. Thank you for reading this, Iona. I already love you. <laughs> oh, I sweet. Um, it's it's um, odd to think that we actually overlapped in Karachi um, because I would well, I was a young child when you were there in Karachi, seeing those first um, cancer cases. Um, uh, also, um, yeah. <laughs> um, that, that is really curious. It is. So. You talk in the book um, about an evolutionary model of cancer, and this was a this was a completely new thing to me. Let me find the quotation so I express it precisely, because yes, here we are. So you talk about cancer having an emergent complexity. And um, you say that tumors evolve by the Darwinian process of natural selection. Um, I'm reading a really short passage here. Cancer begins in a single cell with one or more genetic mutations driving its release from growth controlling signals. As the cell starts unchecked proliferation, its daughters pick up additional mutations, giving rise to multiple branches emanating from the tree. Each branch of cells carrying the driver mutation of the founder cell and the novel passenger mutations acquires novel metabolic and physiologic properties. Cells whose genotype matches the microenvironment develop a growth advantage, selectively expanding their population. Others wait their turn silently. No patient has one cancer. And I think at some point you also say that this kind of, um, this sense of cancer 
uh, branching off into multiple branches within the same patient's body um, is 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 like is analogous to the um, the evolution of new species within uh, Darwinian biology. Could you could you give my uh, listeners who are probably not uh, many of whom are probably not professional scientists a bit of a run through because that was uh, um, a revelation to me this idea of the cancer evolving within the patient him or herself um, yes of course so interestingly. Every year, if you think about it worldwide, cancer kills approximately 10 million people. 10 million individuals die of cancer every year. Uh, in the United States alone, it's something like 45,000 patients dying every day from cancer. Now, two-thirds of them die because they are diagnosed at a, an advanced stage of the disease. So why is the advanced stage of the disease so difficult to control? Because it's very different than the cancer at the beginning, which by itself should tell you that, yes, something has changed between a cancer when it started and when it has become advanced, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Take a very simple example. One of the greatest success stories of cancer treatment through a generic attack on the mutated protein is the story of chronic myeloid leukemia. This is a bone marrow cancer, which was a universal killer when I came to this country uh, and in the early 80s was treating a lot of people with chronic myeloid leukemia, also called CML. So it has a phase in which it is called the chronic phase. Nothing much happens, just the white blood count of the patient is going higher and higher. Suddenly, the disease takes a turn towards what we call accelerated phase and then develops into an acute, full-blown, frank leukemia called the blastic phase. And that is a 100% fatal illness. It turns out that during the chronic phase, uh, it begins in one cell due to a single mutational change, a single genetic change. And if we target that abnormal protein produced by this genetic change with a drug called imatinib or Gleevec, the patient will enter complete remission. And now just with this one pill, Iona, people are being cured. It's, it's the first cancer that was cured with a magic bullet because we found one gene causing one protein to be abnormal that could be targeted with one drug. This is the perfect paradigm. And it seemed to establish this idea that all we have to do is find one mutation that's causing pancreatic cancer and target it with one drug. So what happens though, why I'm saying all this in order to explain evolution is to simply make this point. Imatinib or Gleevec, the drug that cures people if they have chronic myeloid leukemia in the chronic phase, the same drug is completely futile and useless if it is used when the disease has changed to accelerated phase or blastic crisis. 
So what has changed in between? Why isn't the same drug working at an advanced stage? Because the disease is no more the same. How has it changed from early to late disease? It evolves. And it simply the evolutionary principle of Darwinian evolution is simply variations, environmental change given time, right? So all kinds of cells are being produced each time one cancer cell divides into two, it picks up new mutations. Some of these mutations have a great fit with the environment in which they are being born. And if there is a perfect fit with the landscape, then that cell will have a growth advantage. When will it start expanding its clonal population? Whereas those mutations that are not completely well suited to evolve, to uh, have a robust growth in the environment in which they are they find themselves, they will remain silent or they will even die. A lot of cancer cells die all the time as well. In fact, of the cells that are released from the tumor into the blood, do you know that only one out of one billion cells that are released into the blood, only one out of a billion actually has the capacity to make metastases? Mm, no, I had no idea. Yeah, so it's that because that one uh, cell out of a billion cells happened to be suited to the environment in which it found itself. And then, boom, it undergoes rapid proliferation. Then each time its daughters divide, they have additional mutations, which are just random DNA copying errors that they're picking up. You know, a cell to divide into two cells needs to copy its entire DNA of three billion base pairs. So it makes mistakes. And if it's accelerating that growth, by thousands of uh, times, because a cancer cell is dividing so much faster, it tends to make more DNA copying errors. And those copying errors are mutations that may not change the nature of the cell entirely, but can change how it responds to treatment, for example, and metabolizes drugs. So evolution simply means that as a cell divides into two cells it is acquiring slight variations which if fitted with the environment over time will give rise to new species that's it that's the darwinian evolution that's the Dar that's the tree that darwin drew in his notebook mm. i think at some point you also say that um Unfortunately, when the patient is treated with chemotherapy, this also provides a selection. This also provides a selection pressure um, on the cancer cells. So those daughter cancer cells, which are more resistant uh, to the chemotherapy, will survive, um, and they they can then just lie in wait and later proliferate. Have I understood that correctly? Perfectly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was a completely new, um, that was a, a, um, a totally new revelation to me. Um, and you also talked about um, the other image that I think was very, was new to me was the idea of um, critical systems um, as you, um, you do acknowledge that there are some cancers which are obviously linked to 
behaviors or environments such as um, smoking, for example, causing lung cancer. But you said that a lot of cancers are simply caused by the accumulation of, of um, errors and um, and the, the establishment of a kind of critical system. So it's like a, a heap of sand grains. And finally, one last, it will take one last grain to cause an avalanche. Um, could you talk about the factors that, that lead to that lead to this kind of um, environment in which um, a a single change could could start the process towards cancer. First, let me say that I'm very impressed that you have gotten such complex scientific uh, paradigms so clearly, uh, not only grasp it clearly, but also you're able to express this so well. Thank you for reading it so carefully. Um, here's the story, Iona. Cancer is a disease of the aging. Sure, there are few children affected with it, but the numbers are very small. For example, in the United States, there is 1.7 million new cases diagnosed every year. Only 14 to 15,000 of them occur in children. So we are talking about cancer being a disease of adult life, and especially the incidence really increases after 50 years of age. So it is a disease of the aging. So what has aging done to make the human body so um, susceptible to cancer. In fact, I say that aging is the worst carcinogen you can face. I call it the mist of aging, M-I-S-T, mist. It's an acronym. M stands for mutations. So just like we talked about it, every time a cell divides into two, the DNA polymerase is going to make copying errors randomly. And those mutations, if they're bad enough, the cell will die. Otherwise, the tumor suppressor genes in the cell will fix the mutation. Uh, the DNA errors are corrected and the cell is uh, rendered completely normal. But if these mutations are not necessarily uh, disrupting the function of the cell, then the cell will just retain them and continue. So with age, practically all our cells are dividing. And so most of them are now developing, accumulating mutations in them. And so the first M of the mist is that with age, we have a lot more mutations in every one of our cells. The I stands for the immune system, which becomes a little decrepit with age. Everything is becoming decrepit. Look, I see myself in the mirror every morning. I'm horrified. And I think to myself, if this is what's happening on the outside, what's happening inside my body? Well, inside, every system is becoming a little decrepit. Uh, the... S in the mist stands for senescence. And senescence is a phenomenon which is very interesting. Uh, with age, our cells either die or they can turn down their activities and enter a state of hibernation by dialing down all the vital functions. So they still are alive, but they are not functional anymore. However, because they are alive, they are still producing you know, the end results of met metabolism. So they will keep producing garbage that needs to be disposed of. But as more and more cells in our body 
have performed their functions, reached the end of their proliferative cycles, and instead of dying, have become senescent, they start basically uh, basically overwhelming the environment in which they are sitting with the uh, with production of these toxins that are not being efficiently removed by the garbage removal system of the body, which is becoming also overwhelmed. So now you have mutations, you have an inefficient immune system, you have a lot of senescent cells. And with age, there's a lot of tissue loss, which is the T in mist. Tissue loss means that, for example, in a young person, 50% of the bone marrow is fat cells and 50% is actually hematopoietic cells, which make blood. In a 70-year-old person, 80% of the marrow has become fat cells and only 20% are the cells which are going to produce blood. So just the physiologic separation, the geographic, the spatial separation of cells causes interference in the exquisitely well-controlled, physiologically graded signaling mechanisms of the cells. And that itself can cause disruptions in functioning of cells. So in other words, the mist of aging means that we are accumulating a lot of little changes. So I, uh, as you pointed out, I tend to think of it like a sand pile. If you start dropping grains of sand, they will collect in a pile. But a time will come when one grain of sand will cause an avalanche in the pile. But the last grain that caused the collapse of the pile was no different than thousands of grains that came before it. It is the pile that had become unstable. That's what I'm saying, that with age, our body becomes unstable because of the mist of aging. And now even a small mutation change, something can set the avalanche going simply because the whole body is unstable. In other words, we can't keep concentrating on that last grain of sand that caused the uh, problem. Because by focusing on that one mutation, you are really now ignoring all the other things that have little roles to play. So it's basically a death by a thousand cuts kind of analogy. Mm. Mm. You, um, I, oh, one of the other things um, that you talked about, which was also new to me, was the Hayflick limit. Um, and uh, so as our cells are dividing um, they are acquiring mutations. Um, and so one would, one would expect that, and after a certain number of cell divisions, cells will either will normally either go into cell death or senescence. Um, and if they're cancerous, those cells will continue to proliferate. Um, but one would expect, um, this is something that you point out that I found quite fascinating, that larger animals would be more prone to cancer because larger animals simply have more cells and more cell divisions. And um, longer-lived animals also have a longer time, time span over which cells are dividing. But in fact, the opposite is true. Mice have more, have more cancers than humans, and elephants have very few cancers. Um, could you explain to listeners, because I find this totally fascinating, why this why this is? Um, yeah, that is a very interesting um, 
concept that why is it that, for example, uh, if you have 10 cells in the body and one of them goes rogue, um, then that means uh, if you have a larger animal with a thousand cells, then 100 cells will go have the potential for going rogue, right? So larger animals should be having uh, more of an incidence of cancer, but they don't. And that's called Peto's paradox. Why doesn't it happen? So the answer to that is, well, the larger animals have developed a large body mass because it is compatible with longer lives. For example, whales can live for hundreds of years, uh, easily over a hundred year, years. So do elephants. And neither of them practically ever get cancer. Whales don't get cancer. Blue whales, the largest animals, one of the largest mammals don't get it. Why? And uh, why do smaller mammals get more cancer, for example? Mice get more cancers than elephants. It turns out that in elephants, there are um, multiple copies of a gene called P53, which is one of the most important genes that can suppress formation of cancers. If it senses that a cell is starting to misbehave, it forces it to commit suicide. So humans have one copy of the gene P53, whereas elephants have 20 copies of it. So in an attempt to try and protect humans uh, from developing cancer, scientists thought, well, all we have to do is then give the animal multiple copies and see if it will protect them from cancer. And when we did that in animal models and gave them multiple copies of the gene, it turned out that, yes, they didn't get cancer. That was true, except they aged very quickly and died within a third of their lifespan. So they shortened their lifespan, but died without cancer. They died of aging. So then scientists thought, well, maybe one thing we can do is not increase the copy number of the gene P53, but just make it more available. In other words, as soon as a protein that is formed from P53 starts to be produced, there is also a protein produced called MDM2, which starts destroying the protein as well so that it doesn't uh, kind of overwhelm the system. So as soon as P53 protein is being made, MDM2 is also uh, initiated into making the destroyer of P53. So scientists decided to turn off MDM2. So they made mice from uh, animals from where they had knocked out the gene for MDM2, which means whatever P53 they started to make would hang around. There was nothing destroying the protein. And the hope was that this would protect the animals from getting cancer. And once again, it was true they didn't get cancer. But you know what happened, Iona? The animals underwent massive apoptosis, which is every cell in the body committed suicide because of excess P53 protein. Every cell killed itself and the animal melted in front of your eyes. God. <laughs> so you can't simply go in and tinker with one gene thinking this is what is protecting from cancer because you have unintended consequences of such manipulations. 
we don't understand why elephants don't get cancer. We thought it is because it has 20 copies of P53, but it must have something else too. Because giving another animal 20 copies didn't work. Now, in whales, there's only one copy of P53. Why don't they get cancer? So now, currently, the only acceptable answer to Peto's paradox, by the way, I say all the time that it would be a great strategy for humans to try and do comparative oncology, study cancers in all kinds of animals and compare them to human to learn what has nature done to evolve anti-cancer strategies in larger mammals. So instead of trying to develop drugs in animal models, I am for studying animal models to compare how cancers are different in mammals who are small versus large, etc. So just to give you the answer for Peto's paradox that's accepted right now is that sure, large animals like humans and elephants and whales make cancer cells all the time. Every day there are hundreds of cancer cells made, but the strategy in our body is very interesting. And some of this has been proved in vitro, working in labs. And this is what animal models are good for, to study this kind of thing. Um, you know what they did is they showed that, let's say a cancer cell begins uh, in, uh, in an animal's body and starts proliferating rapidly. It forms a little tumor. Well, one of the daughter cells acquires some additional mutation because of which it becomes a cheater. What does that mean? That means that as soon as cancer cells start proliferating, they have to, they're dividing very rapidly, which means they need a lot of nutrition. So they start making new blood vessels to supply themselves with the nutrition. And so they start making growth factors that cause formation of new blood vessels. Without this neovascularization, the tumor can't grow. So the tumor starts, it is dividing rapidly, it's making these growth factors that are making new blood vessels. Suddenly, a cheater tumor cell arises, which has a mutation that causes it to divide very rapidly. So it divides faster than the original tumor and its daughters now overwhelm the initial tumor and cause those cells to starve and die. The problem is that this cheetah has become more rapidly dividing at the cost of not having the growth factors for blood vessels. So it has grown very rapidly taking all the blood supply from the original tumor because it was faster growing starving the original tumor, but now it starves to death by itself because it cannot make new blood vessels. Mm, you see what yes, I'm saying? Yes. This is how the cheater then ends up killing itself. And this is how we think nature has taken care of in larger mammals, protecting from cancer. Mm. I, I just want to make sure people understand what the P53 is and that I understand it. So... You call it the guardian of the genome. So the P53 is is um, uh, um, is a patrolling, as it were, looking for cells that should be entering senescence or committing suicide, um, and sending that signal 
Is that correct? Yes. And that's why the mice uh, died when the, um, when the, what, is, what was it called? Sorry, the MD, um, the regulatory factor, the gene that was controlling the regulatory factor um, for the P53 was knocked out because then P53 just, um, it, the, the amount was uncontrolled and it just told all of the cells to commit suicide. So the Absolutely. mice melted. Yeah, exactly right. So its nature is, and, and biology is highly complicated. We can't use reductionist insights into fixing things easily. Mm-hmm. Yes, those kinds of things worked once in a while, like for chronic myeloid leukemia, it worked. But even there, it worked at the earliest stage of the disease, not at the later stage. Mm. Yeah. I want to, um, uh, I just want to note that you have this very, very poetic description of um, cancer, and I don't want to forget to read it, where you say that cancer is what happens when some part of us, some part of ourselves wants to live forever. The body is more a confederation of cells agreeing to act in concert than a single organism. When a cell refuses to die and transmits that obdurate life force to its neighbours, We get cancer, death brought on by the striving for immortality. That's just an extraordinary irony. Yeah, couldn't agree more. (laughs) So I'd like to move on to why it is that, how people usually um, currently do research to develop new cancer drugs and why that isn't effective. Currently... Um, As I understand it, when people are doing research into new cancer treatments, they begin by um, creating cell cultures and testing things on cell cultures. And then they test things on mice and maybe also on um, primates. And then finally, they they test things on a carefully selected group of, of human subjects. And you say in the book that although, of course, you're not against that form of research, you think that 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 form of research should not be um, absorbing 90, 95% of funding, because while it may be slowly giving us more information about um, the way in which cancer does chemical signaling, etc., it has not been leading to effective drug treatments. Um, tell us more about that. Well, I think I'm far more critical than that. I'm absolutely dead set against this model because it has nothing to do with reality, Iona. Okay, and good. that's what I point out in the book very openly. In fact, one of the most important sentences to me in my book is that cancer researchers study a disease they never see. Mm, mm. Animals who don't get it. Mm, yeah. This is the problem. 90% of people studying cancer never see patients. They have no idea what they're talking about. You can't know about a cancer by reading from some book. You can't. You have to see patients to realize how complicated and how systemic a disease it is. So the think about if I want to study cancer, how should I study it? Let's say we take the tumor from the patient try to study it, 
I want to know how is it growing so rapidly. So then I have to put it in culture. The minute I put it in culture, those cells are going to die. Fresh cell tumor cells just don't grow. So people kept trying to grow cells in the lab until one fine day, a cervical cancer started to grow. That is the HALA cell line that began. The Henrietta Lacks uh, patients, a very well-known story. Anyway, so that kind of uh, sudden change in a cell that caused it to self-perpetuate and become immortalized in a Petri dish is very different now than the tumor from which it came, which is was the cervical cancer in a woman's body. Mm, mm. Because if you took 100 of such cervical cancers and put them in Petri dishes, 99.9% of them would just die. One took off because the cell caused some mutation or God knows what environment it met in that particular Petri dish that it took off. But taking off doesn't mean it is representing anything to do with the original tumor. In fact, what people have shown now very clearly is that if you take liver cancer cells, ovarian cancer cells, pancreatic cancer cells, cervical cancer cells, any tumor cells and put them in a Petri dish, grow them, now you want to see what genes are they expressing. You would think that cells coming from the liver cancer would express genes that are expressed by liver cancer cells, right? Mm, and yeah. those coming from ovarian cancer should express genes normally expressed by ovarian cancers. Well, it turns out that all the different tumor types in vitro are now expressing genes which are helping them survive in very adverse conditions of in vitro microenvironment. And they have nothing to do being faithful to the organ of origin from which they came. In mm. other words, they all look alike in vitro, whether they're coming from breast cancer or prostate cancer. Their genetic expression is only the same because they're only uh, using genes which, is, which are helping them survive this adverse condition. So how are you going to think that any drug you study or any function you study in this environment is going to have anything to do with the original tumor? Yeah, this is the evolutionary thing again, isn't it? They have... Um, these are the daughter cells, which are the, the particular clonal cells, which are adapted to surviving in a Petri dish. Yeah, they're completely different than what's happening in vivo in the patient. The problem is that doctors are not have, a, have abdicated their role so that they have given up all of uh, studying of tumors to scientists. Scientists never see patients. They think that what they are seeing in vitro are real tumors. And they develop drugs that kill those tumors and give it to doctors. Okay, these drugs should work. Well, doctors bring them to the bedside. 95% of them fail today. And the 5% that succeed should have failed because they are only prolonging survival of a fraction of patients, 20 to 30% usually, for a few weeks. And yet we are putting patients through so much torture, physical as well as financial toxicities, for what? Because our uh, preclinical models are so terrible, but no one has the uh, guts to stand up and say it. Yeah, I, that was. Uh, those were some of the most extraordinary figures in the book, um, and one of my, uh, one of the strongest impressions I had from the book is. 
how little um, cancer treatments have improved. So there has been improvement in, um, if you, uh, there has been some improvement in survival, but mostly because some cancers we are detecting more earlier through screening, such as cervical cancer. But in the actual treatments, um, you said that those treatments have not, there has not on the whole been significant advances since the 1930s in the way that there has for treating, say, heart disease. Yes, absolutely. The numbers are very sobering. And you know what, Iona? They are so terrible, I can't make them up. Uh, By the way, I think it's uh, Mark Twain who has been... um, Um, held responsible for saying that fact is more fantastic than fiction. Nobody knows for sure if it was Mark Twain who said it or not, but there is something that Mark Twain did say, which is that fiction must remain within the realm of possibilities, whereas fact and reality is not confined by such things. So in, basically, the idea being that I can't make up these figures because they are so fantastic. They are so crazy. And the figures are very simple. The figures are that the age-adjusted mortality from cancer in 2020 is the same as it was in 1930. Sure, there has been a 1% decline a year in mortality from cancer for the last 30 years, which leads to something like 27% reduced mortality from cancer. But that 30-year reduction follows a 30-year previous increase and both parallel rise and fall of smoking. So Mm -hmm. it isn't that we have developed some great treatment because of which there's a 1% decline. It is a combination of, as you said, early detection because we are using screening measures, we are more aggressive, we are finding tumors earlier. So the same slash poison burn can be curing more patients because they're diagnosed early but and then combined with the anti-smoking campaign. So yes, but basically... The outcome for a patient who is diagnosed with advanced cancers of the common types like lung and breast and prostate and pancreas and colon, if you are diagnosed at an advanced stage, then the outcome is really no different than it was for a patient in 1930. And this is the horrendous truth that everyone is refusing to see. Think about the fact that we have spent a quarter of a trillion dollars, something like $300 billion in cancer research in America since the war on cancer was declared in 1971 by Mr. Nixon. What do we have to show for these $300 billion and 4 million papers that have been published in cancer? It isn't, yes, we understand the biology of cancer better, sure, But why haven't we been able to convert these biologic insights into improved therapies? Because everything is hyped up in animals. Any advance you see is in animals. Yes, there are a few patients who are being helped by CAR-T therapy, for example, the the immune therapies, 
but those are like my colleague Siddhartha Mukherjee, the great writer of Emperor of All Maladies, pointed out in a beautiful New Yorker article that he wrote on cellular therapies, CAR-T therapies, especially earlier this year. He said that, look, even if CAR-T therapies cure every patient they are who, who every patient who's eligible to get that treatment, it would still only be 7,000 patients a year. Whereas the incidence of new cancers is 1.7 million. But think of the hype that CAR-T therapies have received. It has been proclaimed from the rooftops as if the answer for every cancer has arrived. So basically, because of all this propaganda and taking one little advance in in one very small subset of patients where even when it is used, CAR-T cells therapies are so toxic that whole industries are arising just to control the side effects. And they cost something like $2 million per patient that is not even supportable by the most advanced countries in the world, this kind of a cost. But the whole idea that my 90 and 95-year-old patients come asking me, why aren't you giving me CAR-T therapy? Are you holding it back because I'm too old? Because it's the kind of smoke and mirror approach we have taken to fool the public into believing that wonderful things have happened in cancer research. They think, well, if I get cancer, I just read in the New York Times that you can find great treatment options. It's only when they're diagnosed with advanced disease and come to the clinic, they find that, no, not only do my doctors have no treatment to offer me except slash poison burn, which is not going to improve my life uh, or my survival but by more than a few weeks. First, they're going to fleece me of every penny I own. Mm. I think one of the one of the things that I... Um, that I discovered reading the book or one of the strong impressions I had, and you should correct me if I'm wrong, is that we simply do not yet know how to target cancer cells specifically. So what we're doing with chemotherapy, radiation, um, CAR-T therapies, and other such therapies is going into the affected organ and killing all cells, not specifically being able to to give the medications the precise postcode that they need to find and kill the cancer cells. Am I correct in, in that assessment? You're absolutely right. None of the treatments, including the much-hyped CAR-T therapy, can distinguish between a normal cell and a cancer cell. There are immune cells in our body called T cells, which can act as uh, killer cells and get rid of uh, uh, rogue cells which are not behaving properly either because they are infected or they are cancerous, etc. For some reason, the T cells are unable to recognize cancer cells as being abnormal and being potentially lethal. And so lots of T cells are present around the cancer cells, but they are not doing their job. One way we found is because every normal cell can express a signal saying, eat me. If it starts misbehaving, it expresses the signal, eat me. If it's functioning properly, it has a signal that says, don't eat me. Well, cancer cells have somehow duped in the normal cell into expressing, don't eat me signal all the time. 
So T cells arrive because they sense something abnormal is going on in this tumor area. But when they arrive, they see that the cell, the tumor cell is expressing don't eat me signal. So they don't kill it. Mm -hmm. Those signals are called checkpoints. So one of the big um, insights in recent years has been to find drugs that would uh, expose these cells as saying eat me instead of saying don't eat me. And that those drugs are called checkpoint inhibitors. And they have produced some dramatic responses in a few cancers like melanomas. These patients are now living 10 years where they used to die very quickly. So yes, but that's just a very small percentage of the total cancer population. But yes, in that subset, the checkpoint inhibitors have had dramatic success. And also in some patients with lung cancer, for example, they're living longer than before, thanks to these kind of immune therapies. Another way of getting T cells to target the abnormal cell is you take some protein that is present on the cancer cell and you genetically engineer the T cells to go and kill any cell which is expressing that protein. So in a true dramatic feat of genetic engineering, which got two scientists rightfully the Nobel Prize, I think this is one of the greatest discoveries. What they managed to achieve through genetic engineering was to get T cells engineered in such a way that they can now go and kill any cell expressing a protein which is called CD19. So in the body, lymphoid, B lymphoid cells express CD19. So any cancer of B lymphoid cells, whether it's leukemia or lymphoma, can be targeted with T cells, which are told to go kill every B cell in the body. So that's... They're killing healthy cells as well as cancer cells. Well, yeah, because healthy cells, that's the problem, that healthy cells also express CD19, so they will also be killed. But it is possible to replace the function of B cells by giving patients infusions of immunoglobulins, which is what B cells make. So any patient who has a lymphoma where we used, the we took out patients' T cells, we engineered them now, to kill any cell which is expressing CD19, we give it back to the patient. Those T cells go and kill every B cell in the patient's body. And that alone causes such storms in the body that uh, the toxicities are mind-boggling and really so hurtful that lots of patients die just from that massive killing of cells inside their bodies and the cytokine storms that arise as a result of the massive cell death of billions and billions of cells happening suddenly. But then the problem is that now no more normal B cells are left. So we have to keep replacing functions of uh, B cells by immunoglobulin infusions. However, if we end up killing, say, liver cancer cells and end up killing the whole liver, we can't replace the function of the liver. Mm. Yeah, it's such a crude approach. Such a crude approach. But the way they talk about it, and even the scientists... You listen to any lecture, do they ever mention that this CAR-T therapy cannot distinguish between normal and cancerous cells? Yes, it is very targeted to one protein. 
the whatever you target it against. But then that protein is, this is one of the problems, Iona, that has uh, everybody and their grandmother who's doing research in cancer has been trying to find a protein that is only expressed by cancer cells and not expressed by normal cells. But that doesn't hasn't been found in the last 60 years. So my approach to cancer is a radically different one for all these reasons. And I'm mm. happy to talk about that whenever you are ready. Yes, let's let's move on to that. Um, so I, I know that your approach involves early detection, um, preve- uh, um, prevention of cancer. So detection at a very early stage. And I just want to clear up the misunderstanding that when you talk about prevention, you're not talking primarily about lifestyle changes. You are talking about detecting cell abnormalities, um, just in case anybody has that that misconception. Um, tell us, tell tell us about your approach um, and uh, how it works, and how you are able to personal hoping to personalize it to individual patients. Yes, so it will um, it will take me a minute of telling you the background first, Yona. Look, I came to this country in 1977 after graduating from med school and immediately started working even before my residency started in internal medicine. I, I couldn't wait. I mean, I was so excited about curing cancer <laughs> as a 24-year-old. I started working in a cancer institute, Roswell Park in Buffalo, New York, Um, in uh, research and seeing patients both with acute myeloid leukemia. In that 1977, I started my career in oncology by treating patients with acute myeloid leukemia with a combination of two drugs that are popularly known as 7 and 3, because 7 days of a drug called ARASC and 3 days of a drug called donomycin. So they're called 7 and 3. These are the two drugs I was using in 1977. Guess what I'm using in 2020? The same two drugs. I want to tell you about a young lady by the name Lyna. Lyna was born and raised in L.A. Her parents, like me, came from Pakistan, settled in L.A., have Lyna, grows up uh, there, And by the time she's 25, she becomes famous for some podcast she was doing. At 28 years of age, she lands a coveted job at LA Times. And immediately after that, developed acute myeloid leukemia. She's 28. She's living in LA. She now has AML. What do we offer, Lina? Seven and three, which has dreadful results. Her only chance of survival now is an allogeneic bone marrow transplant, which would be best coming from either a sibling donor or a matched unrelated donor. Well, her only sibling, her brother, was not a match. So we went to the tissue um, international tissue registry, tried to find an unrelated donor. Now, finding an unrelated donor for a non-Caucasian in the international donor, re- donor registry is a very difficult thing, and mostly it's negative. You just don't find those donors because the donors haven't registered. So I actually went on television drives and things like that to encourage individuals of South Asian origin to please step up and register as potential donors. They may be matches for Lina. 
Unfortunately, we couldn't find a match. So she gets a transplant at City of Hope Hospital in LA, a haplotransplant from her brother, which is a mismatched transplant. It's horrible to do that because the transplant rejects the host. And that uh, graft versus host reaction is so horrifying, you never want to see it. Anyway, there was no other choice. So they transplanted her with her brother, mismatched. Within six months, she relapsed. She was given a second haplotransplant from her brother. And then the death that she had, you oh my God, she just died in March of this year at 29 years of age. How many nights and evenings did I walk on my balcony in the last winter talking to her tormented family? How many nights? How is it possible, her mother would ask me, three liters of fluid was removed from her abdomen just a day ago, recollected. So it isn't that she just died. She died an exceedingly painful death. Why is it that in last 43 years, I have failed my patients so completely and so badly? You think about the number of hopeless conversations I've had with thousands of patients over these 43 years, repeating the same exact conversation. You have acute myeloid leukemia. This is what we are going to offer you. These are the side effects to expect. This is the potential benefit, etc. Think of my the insanity of it. By the time I had been working in this field for eight years, by 1984, it was very clear to me that in my lifetime, this disease will not be cured. Because it's so complicated when you look at a patient with acute myeloid leukemia. So many of my patients gave the story that, oh, our blood counts had been low, sometimes months, sometimes years before the actual leukemia was diagnosed. So I got very interested in that pre-leukemic phase, which seemed to be preceding the acute leukemia onset in a lot of patients. And that pre-leukemic phase is called myelodysplastic syndrome. So I thought to myself as a very young researcher, wow, that's where we should try and intercept the disease and not let it become the end stage monstrosity that is impossible to control. We should be treating and studying acute le pre-leukemia. Now, had I gone to school in this country, at that point, my next step would have been to make a mouse model of pre-leukemia, right? But thankfully, I was a naive young person from Pakistan, and I depended on my instinct rather than custom and tradition. And I thought to myself, well, if I'm going to make any difference in this disease, I have to study the disease, which means I should save cells to study from patients. And that's when I just started putting the cells in freezers. And so began a tissue repository in 1984, that today has 60,000 samples sequentially, longitudinally obtained from individuals as they traverse the course of disease from pre-leukemia to acute leukemia or from pre-leukemia to an aggressive form of myelodysplastic syndrome from which they die. And I have dozens of samples through their journey on individual patients. 
from bone marrow and blood and serum and plasma and biopsies and separated stem cells, viably frozen cells, then germline controls. I save T cells, buccal smears, and everything is backed by a computerized clinical database. Not a single cell, not one cell out of these 60,000 samples has come from another oncologist. I have taken care of every patient. To this day, I do every bone marrow biopsy myself. And every while in these freezers, Yona has a poignant story for me. It is not a dispassionate, cold thing for me to take out 50 samples of this and 500 of that. Every name has a story. I have taken care of these patients. Think of my frustration that I have not been able to help them because it turned out that even pre-leukemia is a horrible cancer. So it became apparent to me that in order to really catch the disease early, like Lyona, why would a 28-year-old get pre-leukemia and then acute leukemia? Why? So it means no one is safe from cancer. It's a silent killer. You can't even suspect it in many patients until it's already advanced. So basically, it occurred to me very early on that what I have to do is monitor wellness to find illness. Start screening people continuously, not once a year with mammograms or not once every five years with colonoscopies, but every day if possible, while they are well, to detect the earliest disease perturbations and preempt the clinical bona fide establishment of the disease. Let me just um, let me just clarify for a moment in my own words, in case uh, listeners are finding this too technical. What you're doing with a tissue bank is you are saving as much of a, a record of um, the state of your patient's cellular health as possible. So you can try to distinguish what factors differentiate patients who go on to, to uh, get more severe forms of pre-leukemia um, and to get leukemia from the others, and also patients who respond well to drugs from patients who don't respond. So what you're trying to see is a correlation between um, this, what is happening in their cells at that moment and what their, their later disease trajectory will be. Is that, is that yes, a fair summary? that is. And the hope is that by studying the patients backwards from acute leukemia to all the earliest stages of pre-leukemia, and then asking the question, why did this person even get pre-leukemia? How did the first cell even arise? Was there a genetic susceptibility? Was there exposure to something? What are we missing? This means that we really need to even go to find the earliest possible markers of pre-leukemia. And that's what I'm trying to do with the tissue repository. And fortunately, uh, because of... Uh, all the efforts we have made, fortunately, the 
uh, technology has also evolved beautifully. But even what we have today in terms of what we think is very advanced technology, which we call multi-omics on single cell level, looking at proteomics, genomics, transcriptomics, metabolomics, everything on one cell at a time, is dramatic. However, what is coming in the next few years is going to make this look primitive. Let me tell everybody that. Because technology is constantly evolving. Today, the biggest word in technology and even to handle all the data is machine learning, artificial intelligence. Because how do you handle so much data generated on multi-omics from individual cells, billions of cells in a tumor? This is all going to be possible only to be handled by machine learning and AI. Well, it shouldn't be daunting because, look, I'm right now wearing a Fitbit an Apple Watch that is telling me constantly how many calories I've burnt, how many steps have I taken, what is my heart rate, what was my heart rate at baseline, what is it while I went for my jog. All the, these wearable devices are giving me vital information about my body. Well, our idea is, and specifically my idea is, that the only compassionate and universally applicable way of handling the cancer problem is to use the strategy that has worked best until now, which is early detection. But try and develop methods of such early detection that we don't need the draconian measures of slash, poison, and burn. Rather, we can use non-toxic ways of handling those few earliest possible cells. In other words, finding every cancer at the stage of chronic phase of CML rather than finding it at blast crisis. So let me give you one example of how that can happen. Actually, two examples. One is, let's say that I go to sleep in bed sheets now that are scanning my body overnight automatically. And this is all happening. There are these monitors that are flexible monitors that are being sewn into fabrics easily. So we have scanners that uh, can detect, let's say, a hot area in the head of my pancreas one morning. What does that mean? That means, as I told you earlier, as soon as a tumor begins, blood supply to it increases because it's dividing rapidly and it needs the nourishment. So whenever blood supply to an area increases, it becomes hot. It can be picked up by these bed sheets. Let's say that my bed sheets picked up an area that is hot in the head of my pancreas. Does it mean in the morning I should go and have an open abdominal surgery and a Whipple's procedure and eviscerate every organ in my abdomen? Of course not. All it means is that there is an area of interest which is getting extra blood supply. What does it mean? Well, let's monitor it every day. Let's say for two weeks, I keep detecting the same area every morning. It means there is a region of interest. Is it producing some abnormal cells? What are the other signs of abnormal cells? Well, we know that DNA, RNA, proteins, metabolites are shed off into blood and saliva and urine and feces and tears and breath everywhere in every compartment there will be some uh, shadow some footprint of abnormality that is being produced in the head of my pancreas so the next step would be to monitor all these compartments for the presence of 
a pancreatic marker, which is abnormal. Now, if 20 tests are telling me automatically taken, for example, I sit on a fit loo, which automatically takes part of my urine and stool every morning to scan it for presence of abnormal proteins. Things like that, which, uh, which, which are happening already and are under clinical trials. This is not a pie in the sky. So anyway, then with all this uh, scanning of the bed sheets and now supplemented by 20 other tests that have found abnormal biomarkers in multiple compartments in my body, everything is fed automatically into a machine learning artificial intelligence program, which tells me um, just the answer on my own cell phone that, listen, you have something abnormal in the head of pancreas. It looks like this because of the biomarkers. It could be a ductal adenocarcinoma. You know, finding something that early. Now, how do we treat this ductal adenocarcinoma now that we found it? The next question is, should I have, again, removal of my pancreas or should I have a laser beam that can zap it? Another way of doing it is uh, people at NYU here in New York did a very interesting study in which they showed that if there is a pancreatic ductal cancer, the duct is connected from the pancreas into the gut directly. So the microbiome, the organisms, the pathogens that normally live in our gut can migrate into the pancreas through the duct. They go into the tumor actually. And whenever there are pathogens, immune cells follow. So they found that in pancreatic ductal cancer, the tumor contains lots of unique pathogens that have migrated from the gut. And now there are surrounding lots of immune cells, but the immune cells are not doing anything. You know what they found, Iona? Why aren't the immune cells killing off the tumor cells? Because the bacteria which have migrated from the gut into the pancreas have shut off the eat me signal on the tumor cells. So all they did was they just injected antibiotics. Antibiotics killed off the bacteria. So the tumors now started to express eat me signal and the immune cells which were already there simply gulped them up and the tumor disappeared. Marvelous. In, in response to an antibiotic. Now they said, why do we even need antibiotics? We should simply introduce new bacteria that will go and kill off these bad bacteria and then the cells can express eat me signal. So you know what they did? They just gave fecal transplant <laughs> and that cured the pancreatic tumor. So you, what I'm talking to you about is 21st century medicine. When people hear me talking about the first cell and early detection, they have such fits of morality. Oh, well, Dr. Raza, what if you found the first cell? Are you going to give the patient a bone marrow transplant because one cell is abnormal? No, of course not. We are going to, it's literally, let me give you an example of this um, very famous saying. I'll tell you who said it, but let me give you the quotation first. The quotation is this. If I asked my customers what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Who said it? Oh, yes. Um, yes, that's that. Ford, so, in yes. other words, uh, trying to take a horseshoe <laughs> for a faster horse and trying to fit it instead of a car battery in a car. 
That is what it's like saying when you find the first cell, will you treat it with a bone marrow transplant? That is the kind of insanity that occurs in oncologists today. They are incapable of uh, releasing themselves from these chains of uh, outmoded thinking. Somehow there is so much self-defense because, you see, doctors find it very hard to believe that they have been doing something terrible, that they, in fact, have been hurting patients mm. because every oncologist wants to help their patients. I have never met an oncologist who wasn't sincere and didn't want to really help their patients. I haven't met one. Maybe there are some. So I know how sincere they are and how badly they want to help their patients. That's why it's impossible for them to accept the fact that everything they've been doing, most of it has hurt the patient. One of the things that I gathered from the book, which I didn't know before, or which I hadn't thought of in that way before, is that you said that we we have the technology to detect um, cancers or precancerous cells at very low levels. And we know that because, because we already can detect residual cancers when we're monitoring a patient who's already had cancer for recurrence. That was uh, that was kind of a revelation in thinking for me. Yeah, because we can detect, you're right, minimal residual disease. We can detect very well. Why not apply it to minimal initial disease? But remember, the earliest cancer is going to be very different biologically than an advanced minimal residual cancer, which has already reached end stage mutational events. So, yes, the nature of the cells will be different, but the technology is there. So I'm very excited about the future. This is what I wanted to end with. I am so excited about what's coming. You know, Yonai, this uh, pandemic has allowed me to do something very uh, neat, which is that back in March when we got shut down and Zoom introduced uh, me to a way of communication that was not previously uh, easily available. I mean, people had Zoom, of course, but no one was using it. Suddenly, we were forced to use it. So you know what I did? I put together something I called the Oncology Think Tank, TOT. And I invited 30 of the top leaders in the country, whether they are oncologists, scientists, or industry leaders, the top people in the country. And I said, look, I'm the lone voice who keeps talking about early detection and this kind of uh, futuristic thing. Uh, there are others, of course, but again, they are all individual voices. We need to build a consensus together. Why not 30 of us get together from different areas and why not put together an opinion paper? Where does cancer need to go? So do you know that we have now completed 16 meetings of the think tank two hours every week and universities like Hopkins and Harvard and University of Chicago and Columbia and Cornell and Northwestern. I mean, these are not minor institutions. These are the leading institutions in the country. Plus, we have companies which are involved in early detection like Grail and Regeneron and uh, Beckton Dickinson, which were all interested. And one of my ideas is very straightforward. We need to monitor wellness to find illness. Well, we can't use all this technology and go and start monitoring 
the entire population of United States, 300 million people. To begin with, maybe we should concentrate on people who are at high risk of getting cancer. Who are those people? I don't want to scare any of your listeners, but the truth is, the truth <laughs> is that one in five new cancers appears in a cancer survivor. Mm-hmm. And the best example is my own husband, Harvey Preisler, my husband, born and raised in Brooklyn, at 34 years of age, got his first cancer, survives that brutality. At 57, he got a completely unrelated, different cancer from which he died. The same same is true of my mother. So my mother had uh, kidney cancer, and then several years later, she had lung cancer. She died of lung cancer. Oh, God. So you see, I, again, as I said, I don't want to scare anybody, but the truth is, of cancers appear in cancer survivors. So my idea was, why don't we start screening cancer survivors? Simply that. And we don't need much to screen. You know that every major cancer center has a survivor's clinic because we already have 16 million cancer survivors in America. And by 2030, they will be 26 million. So all we need to do, they are coming to clinic for follow-ups. All we need is to draw blood and a saliva sample and a fecal sample and a urine sample. That's it. They just give one tube of blood plus saliva, fecal, feces and urine and we save them. Now, within a year, we are going to have thousands of patients whose samples are saved up and 20% of them will develop cancer. Then we have a population of patients on whom we can find the earliest marker. Do you see what I'm saying? So I suggested just make a cancer survivor center. And I said, for God's sake, we don't even need funds because cancer survivors themselves would be the most, uh, would have the most uh, skin in the game. They would have the highest stake to find the earliest cancer, to find the first cell. All we need to do is, Even out of 16 million cancer survivors, if a million of them decide to participate just by giving a tube of blood twice a year and giving $10 a month for one year, that means $120 million a year for research. Think of it. You go to Starbucks and you spend more more than $10 on coffee and uh, a scone. $10 a month for a cancer survivor to find the earliest indication of the first cell. But we are not telling people this kind of thing. The public would support it. The cancer survivors would support it. But where is where where is our mind? Where is our concern for the patient? This is my biggest problem, Iona. It seems that patient has become the last thing to worry about. The most important things are when can I publish my next paper in Nature? And when can I apply for my next grant? And what is good for this? And I mean, really... Think of Lina. Think of all the people I have talked about. And that was the main purpose of writing the book is to bring the patient back front and center. Stop studying mouse models. Study human cancers. Think of the people who are actually suffering. Offer them the real solutions. And so I tell you, the oncology think tank, when it comes out with the opinion paper, which should be happening anytime now because we have written the paper already, This uh, lockdown has served a purpose in um, sort of uh, causing paradigm shifts in the way we do things and accelerating as a catalyst in many things for us. 
And so I hope that with a consensus building uh, opinion paper that comes out saying all the things we are doing, yes, I'm not saying we shouldn't be worrying about current patients. We should be working on finding answers for them. But at least for the future patients, let's look for a more compassionate, universally applicable solution by finding the earliest cancer and taking care of it by the kind of treatments I talked about earlier, which are next generation treatments. I'd like to, I'm going to read another brief, tiny little section from your book, where you talk about the, uh, about literature in a beautiful way. Uh, I, I should say that the book, we focus very much on the science um, in this podcast, but the book is also deeply humane. There are a lot of beautiful um, and moving human stories. Um, and uh, you're also a highly uh, literary writer. Um, it was an absolute delight. I think the the most similar work that I've read is um, your friend Siddhartha Mukherjee's The Gene, um, which also takes this kind of approach of a mixture of biography and memoir and um, literary inspiration and science. But let me find that. Um, oh, yes, here it is. So you write, by blurring the us versus them margins, as I stood in the shoes of various characters and felt their joys and sorrows, fear and pain, it helped me appreciate the complexity of lives beyond the complacent, self-satisfied, simplistic, Manichaean duality of good and evil. My empathy for characters surged in direct proportion to the level of emotional engagement I experienced in a story. Fiction polished my cognitive and intellectual skills to read emotions in others, gauge anxiety levels, diagnose psychosocial fragility. Fiction gave me the equanimity and self-control to follow the advice of Emery Austin. Some days there won't be a song in your heart sing anyway. So yes, please tell me more about what literature means to you and how it has influenced you. Thank you so much, Iona, because this is a, so much a part of me. As you know, my very first book was very much on, um, on poetry. One of the greatest writers of uh, the subcontinent, but uh, if he's introduced to the world, his uh, stature would be that of Dante and Shakespeare. The poet is Ghalib, and we, Sarah Suleri Goodyear, my co-author and I, wrote an interpretation and translation of his poetry titled Epistemologies of Elegance. So poetry, literature in general, very much a part of uh, my life. And I mean, it's not like there's a deliberate attempt, but stories are always more interesting than statistics. And, of course, literature allows us to poach on the experience of others. Besides the great uh, classics, Middlemarch that you quoted from, for example, uh, the great classics have something in common, which is that their themes are noble. Their language is grand. But more importantly, their message is startlingly fresh for all times. And that message 
invariably is one informed by empathy and compassion. There can be no great uh, writer or lawyer or doctor or even a politician who lacks empathy. And in medicine, I mean, that's what you really need. Something that is a very interesting dichotomy in medicine is that as doctors, we are supposed to not get emotionally involved with our patients because emotions cloud judgments and we won't be able to make the right decisions for them if we get too involved. Harvey, my late husband, who was also my mentor, tried to tell me this. I don't know if I followed his advice at all. But when he was diagnosed with cancer himself, the first thing he did to me, Yona, was he turned to me and said, as you're going to take care of me, you'll be my oncologist. I said, what, Harvey? You're the one who told me all my life that I shouldn't get involved. Now you want me to take care of you? He said, yes, well, sorry, your judgment is the only one I can trust. And so it reminded me recently of this because I watched this uh, very interesting series called The Crown. Have you seen it? Oh, yes, we are big fans of The Crown in this house. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, in The Crown... Queen Elizabeth, who was uh, known to be the heir since she was a teenager, has been raised as a person who's never supposed to show her emotion. She has to be above all of that in public. She has to maintain a certain grim persona. Except there was some kind of a disaster in a village where lots of children get killed as she is the ruling monarch, and she couldn't trust herself to go there and not show her emotions, so she didn't go. And the entire British public descends upon her in anger, saying, what a cold woman. She didn't bother to even show her emotions. Well, that's how she was supposed to be brought up. So doctors, I felt very sympathetic to her, because on the one hand, we are supposed to not get involved. On the other hand, the patients expect an empathetic doctor, no? Yes, that's Aberfan, that episode um, for listeners. I'll put a link to it. That's a beautiful way of, uh, of meeting the dichotomy. So for me, it has always been, uh, I, I must say that I come from a culture where this kind of distinction between Athens and Jerusalem, reason and passion, is not so stark. In fact, mm. where I come from, there's a more seamless kind of uh, interwoven emotional reason and reason taken together. But in the West, there has been a reaction to any show of emotion, and yet you can't get away from human nature, which seeks and, and, and looks for empathy, especially when you are ill. And so for me, my reading of literature really helped me understand, for example, reading Hemingway and Fitzgerald or reading Dante or reading uh, Dostoevsky and Eliot, Thackeray or uh, Rushdie. I mean, what you learn is how complicated life is, that no decisions are simple and choices we make are so critical, every action we, t we take has consequences. 
I'll give mm. you one example from one of my favorite uh, poems, which is the Ballad of Reading Jail by Oscar Wilde. There is a refrain in the ballad, which goes something like, all men kill the thing he, things they love. By each let this be heard, some do it with a bitter look and some with a flattering word. The coward does it with a kiss, the brave man with a sword, yet each man kills the thing he loves. So when, the, when he comes out of jail, his boyfriend, Bozy, Lord Alfred Douglas, asked him, what do you mean by saying all men kill the things they love? And first, Wilde tried not to answer the question head on. But uh, when Bozy persisted, he said, look, when we meet someone, we make an impression of them immediately. Let's say it's a good impression. We keep meeting them again and again, and they don't live up to our initial impression. So instead of changing the impression, we start trying to change the person to fit the impression. And that's how we kill the thing we love. Mm. Mm. It was such a poignant lesson just in this one passage of the ballad that you really learn from reading fiction, from reading poetry constantly about human desires, what motivates people, what agencies people have, what hope means for some, what desperation and hope simultaneously existing can do to a person, and how life is an enigma of incompletion. It's a journey into irresolution that we must keep seeking. And in a way, as they say, the only Zen you find on top of the mountains is the Zen you mm. bring with yourself. That in other words, so much of what we do, the moment of gratification does not live up to the forces that cause the desire. So that in a way, it is the striving for the moment of gratification that becomes as important, if not more so than the moment of gratification itself. And that, to me, turns out to be the difference between healing and cure. There's a Samuel Johnson quotation that is relevant to this. I'm just yes. trying to remember it. Actually, I, I will just Google <laughs> uh, here. It's funny, searching for this quotation, the first thing that comes up is a tweet that I wrote. <laughs> and uh, he says, um, he said, the natural flights of the human mind are not from pleasure to pleasure, but from hope to hope. One of my, one of my favorite quotations from Johnson. Um, well, talking about healing and uh, cure, I'll tell you why I also learned about this from Ghalib, the poet that Sara Suleri Goodyear and I wrote about. Yes, whose his name I butchered. I'm, I'm afraid, despite having grown up in Pakistan, my Urdu is at this stage completely non-existent. <laughs> so I apologize. But yes, carry on. So I was going to say that Ghalib has a very beautiful uh, ghazal poem that begins with this uh, couplet. Ibn Maryam hua kare koi, mere dukh ki dawa kare koi, which can be translated as Mary's son, which means Christ, of course, but he calls it Ibn, he calls Christ Ibn Maryam, not Jesus. 
Mary's son may have performed miracles. Who bears the salve for my suffering? In other words, Ghalib is reproaching Jesus by saying that, okay, you were able to cure Lazarus and you were able to resurrect him. But can you help my suffering? In other words, you can cure, but can you heal? It invokes a Christ who couldn't help ease the poet's suffering. So both prophecy and poetry must dissipate right now in, when they're faced with realities of existence because there are no saviors on the scene other than the poet's language, which is in itself highly conscious of its own fragility. And this sense of frailty, Aona, this, this is the sense that makes more hypnotic the fact that the vulnerability of both the poet and the prophet being in need of healing, which is being withheld from both because mortality is all in the end. And so for me, someone who walks patients to their deaths every week, people I have taken care of for years sometimes, we have become like family members, walking every step of the way through all the way to death with them is an experience which could have caused burnt out in people, but has had the opposite effect on me, that when we don't have cures to offer, then the healing part begins, which becomes so much more important. And that healing part is the ability to help the patient it's like the inversion of the reality principle that Freud talked about, that the only consolation is that there is no consolation, which means if you take hope away from someone, then you need some other subject for action because hope is usually what causes you to act. You're looking forward to something. But if that is taken away, then you are forced to now find hopelessness as the cause of your action, which means you are forced to now concentrate on the here and now, which then in a very interesting way becomes a whole different, um, a whole different journey because once hope is discarded, you now have to go on living from day to day to day. And then every moment becomes precious and important. Every love that you had, every kind gesture becomes highly uh, enhanced. You see what I'm saying? Yes. So poetry and fiction and reading about the lives of others, this is what engages you and helps you walk the patients this ultimate, through their ultimate journey with more dignity, more compassion, more empathy and more love without ever becoming burnt out. And in fact, I want to end this part by quoting from Emily Dickinson. I measure every grief I meet with analytic eyes. I wonder if it weighs like mine or has a different size. I wonder if they had it long or did it just begin? I cannot find the date of mine. It's been so long a pain. I wonder if it hurts to live and if they have to try 
and whether could they choose between they would not rather die thank you yona wow thank you so much asra you have been a ex- really inspiring guest and i am very excited about your new project um and i will make sure that the details are there in the show notes and i hope that everybody listening is taking note um because this is a revolutionary way of thinking um and it 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 gives me great um great hope and i yeah i'm just full of admiration thank you so much thank you and same here i think what you are doing is amazing and we share a background together so <laughs> let's keep in touch and uh, interview me in another year and you'll see how much exciting stuff i have to report i will so i look forward to that very much and we will stay in touch thank you so much and thank you everyone have a wonderful week You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for Ario Magazine. Ario is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At Ario, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both Ario and Two for Tea are entirely audience supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for Ario, A R E O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and Two for Tea. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, By becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. Two for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.